This is The Big Interview. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. This is a podcast that delves deep into a myriad of real-life remarkable stories. We do love a good yarn, but beyond that, we explore how individuals find their purpose, how people react to the unexpected, and what happens when they're pushed to the brink. Paul DeGelder. Give us a bit of background. Well, he's a Navy diver, a motivational speaker, an actor, an author. And I know when I think of people like that, I always think of people who really have their life together Mm. and have good habits. But his journey is really interesting. It took a really convoluted route, I would say. And he's had to survive a truly catastrophic personal trauma to get to where he is today. We caught up with him a few days ago and just started at the beginning, where his first challenge was simply getting out of his hometown in Australia. So, you know, I, I kind of wasn't cutting it at home. You know, I was washing dishes. I was working behind the bar. I was, you know, I was getting in a fight. I wasn't a terribly great person. But I knew that there was this amazing world out there. And I so badly wanted to be a part of it. But I was stuck in this hometown where I was in, where it was really nothing to do. And so I left. I, I jumped into a car. I had no license. And I drove 12 hours north to Brisbane. And I ended up, you know, giving it a go as a rapper. Yeah, we we had a lot of fun. We put out a CD and we opened up for Snoop Dogg. And, you know, I I thought that uh, I'd made it. I'd found my calling as a rapper, but not a lot of money in white rappers in Australia in 1998. An interesting start then to the career of Paul DeGelder, a rapper. He says it himself, not much of a marketplace down there in 1998. And we have to say that you did try to get him to spit just I, a few bars for us. <laughs> and he politely declined. He did. He did say it had been 20-something years since then. <laughs> he didn't feel comfortable on the spot doing that. But uh, we had to try. But so going from being, he sort of describes himself as something of a deadbeat there. Mm. So going from that, how did he eventually get into the military, not just a regular military job, but as a paratrooper and a Navy clearance diver? So I, I read a lot and I, I knew about you know these incredible adventurers and naturalists like David Attenborough and Steve Irwin. And they were out there having these amazing adventures. And so I, I wanted that as well. You know, and I didn't want this normal life of working behind a bar and just settling down and getting married and that, you know, that sounded absolutely horrifying to me. And so I did the only thing I could think of. Uh, I called mum for some advice and my two younger brothers were in the army and uh, they laughed at me basically when I said I was going to join the army. <laughs> and they said, look, it's great though, but if you do join, don't join infantry because it's too hard. You won't make it. And so I joined infantry. So you became a paratrooper, so you did, Paul. You also became a Navy clearance diver. Now, explain that one to me, because I'm sure that like a lot of our listeners will have no clue what a Navy clearance diver is. <laughs> well, the term clearance diver initially comes from World War II, where the, the Navy divers were clearing mines and clearing bombs and clearing rivers of obstructions and things like that. But it's progressed into a more well-rounded role whereby we will do everything from uh, land-based explosive ordnance disposal. So think about, you know, the movie The Hurt Locker. We do that role and then we do that role, but we do it underwater. And then we do the Navy SEAL type stuff where you're swimming um, into enemy positions in the middle of the night, uh, dressed in black with rifles and bombs strapped to you, and you might be doing reconnaissance. His story takes 
an incredible turn. In 2009, while he was on the job, he was involved in an attack that really you can only describe as a living nightmare. And I have to say at this point, just a bit of a warning for those of you out there who have a bit of a sensitive disposition. There is some graphic content in the audio that we're about to hear. Uh, we were testing counterterrorism equipment. It was unmanned video and sonar that was designed to automatically detect attack swimmers and attack divers coming in to put bombs on our ships. And I was pretending to be an attack swimmer. And you know, I was in Sydney Harbour uh, next to the Navy base where we've been diving for decades. And no one's been attacked in Sydney Harbour in 60 years. And so just going about my normal day it was pretty boring it wasn't that exciting and i was only in the water for about five minutes and a bull shark came up from underneath me and it grabbed me by the back of my right leg and my right hand in the same bite and i understand i didn't know what to do i'd never even seen a, a big aggressive shark let alone one attached to me and so it instantly my survival instincts kick in and I think I've got to get it off me and I'm thinking shark week jab it in the eyeball but I can't because it's got my hand in its mouth and I can't reach the eyeball with my left hand so I'm trying to push it off by its nose but that's just pushing the teeth deeper into my leg I tried to punch it in the nose like you hear but as I tried to do that it started to shake me and all of the strength just went out of me the pain was just incredible uh, if you can imagine a bear trap closing down on your leg and your hand, but instead of having those steel spikes, you've got 36 razor blades on either side. And instead of just clamping down, then they start to twist and shake you around, soaring through the flesh in your body. So that's what I went through for about 10 seconds. 10 seconds. And I, yeah, and it, it feels like an eternity when you're going through it. And... I, I just thought I was going to die. There was nothing I could do. This animal was about 300 kilograms, about you know 600 pounds, and I, I couldn't fight it off. There was nothing I could do, and I was drowning at the same time. And so I just accepted the fact that I was going to die. And when I did that, a calm kind of washed over me, and um, I, I thought about my life. Uh, and it's not like time slows down it was almost like the chemicals in my brain had made my my thoughts and my my brain processes work in hyperspeed and I was thinking about my life and I was thinking okay am I ready to die and I thought well you know what from from all the things that I'd done when I was a young man all the, the terrible things and the violent things and the mistakes to what I was doing now to working as a United Nations peacekeeper and serving my country and doing all of these incredible, incredibly adventurous things that I, I never thought that I'd have the chance to do, you know, that, that made my life whole. And I had no regrets and I thought if I'm gonna die now, then I'm okay with that. And so I let go, but as the shark was thrashing me, it tore through my hamstring and it ripped off my hand. And I guess while it was swimming away and swallowing, or, you know, circling back for another go, my wetsuit made me buoyant. So I popped to the surface, realized I wasn't dead, uh, and saw my safety boat in this distance. So I thought, I've got to get out of the water before it comes back to finish me off. Or, you know, there's probably so much blood in here, there's probably heaps more sharks coming in. So I started to swim, but that was when I saw that my hand was totally gone. 
know, the shark had ripped it off. And I thought, okay, my medical training kicked in and I thought I've got to keep that wound above my heart to stop the bleeding as much as I can. So I started swimming with one hand and one leg because I couldn't even feel my right leg. I, I didn't know what the shark had done to it. I just couldn't feel it. And I couldn't see because the water in Sydney Harbour is so murky that you can't see through it, plus the blood. Um, so I just started swimming with everything I had back to my safety boat, which was not very fast with one leg and one hand. Um, but the guys, you know, my teammates had seen what was happening. So they were coming over towards me to, to the rescue. And thankfully, they got to me first. They pulled me out of the water and started first aid to keep me alive. Paul, just listening to your story there, I cannot begin to even put myself in that position. So many questions running through my mind at this point. Talk to us about what was, if you can. What do you remember of what was going through your mind as you made your way to your safety boat? Was it a feeling of just pain, excruciating pain that is coming from your injuries? Does your family, does your life flash before your eyes? What was the thought process as you made your way to that boat? Right, I am a man in every sense of the word in the fact that I am a terrible multitasker. <laughs> and so the you only both. thing that I could think about was get to the damn boat. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, didn't, I honestly didn't think I was going to make it. I thought any second this shark's going to come and get me and I'm going to die. I was just waiting for that chomp on my other leg and, and the, the shark pulling me under the water and finishing me off. And, but I just kept swimming. Oh, I had that laser focus there wasn't any pain at that point because the shark had actually severed a major nerve in my leg uh, and the adrenaline coursing through my body had kind of shut the pain down to help me survive you know our bodies are incredible machines mm. and so my laser focus was get to the boat um and thankfully uh, uh, you know the guys got to me before another shark could come and get me. And what do you remember in terms of what you were thinking and how you were feeling from the moments after you got rescued well, when the guys put me into the boat, just out of the, the pure relief of not being eaten anymore, I relaxed, my eyes rolled back in my head and I passed out. And my buddy Tomo, who was in the boat, he, he, his medical training kicked in and he thought I was going into cardiac arrest. So he gave me what we were commonly refer to as a series of short, sharp jabs to the chest to try and stimulate the heart. Uh, and he, so he's pounding me in the chest and it works. And I wake up and I look up and I look over and my hand is mangled. It's My hand's gone. My wrist is mangled from a shark. And I look up and my buddy Tomo is beating the out of me. And I just think, today sucks. <laughs> that's, that's one that's, way of putting it, That's both. a little understatement there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is a bad day at work. And so, you know, I got my priorities in order. And the first, the first thing I thought about and said to Tomo, was, can you get someone to look after my motorbike? You said that. Yeah. That, that, that was the first thing that sprang to my mind. Make sure someone looks after my motorbike because I don't think I'm riding home today. The voice there of Paul de Gelder. I couldn't believe how vividly he was able to describe the whole experience and what he was thinking because on the one hand, it is so memorable, but then on the other, I would think that you would just block out a trauma like that in terms of the specifics. Absolutely. But, yeah, I was quite surprised you with can... how specifically he was able to detail every moment of that, what must have been just a matter of minutes. Absolutely. Recounting it so vividly, as you rightly point out, Sono. 
now what happens after that? He has to deal with the injuries, with what comes after. And as you can imagine, his injuries were severe. He had only one finger left on his hand, and it was amputated pretty soon after the incident. The shark, and as he, you'd heard him say there, had also taken the whole back of his right leg. So he, at the time, was losing so much blood that one of his teammates had to reach in and pinch close one of his arteries so that he wouldn't bleed out. Um, but he kept the leg for a whole week because they were trying to save it. And his main thought during this time was that if they save the leg... I might be able to keep my job. Yeah. And unfortunately, his foot just kept getting darker and darker and darker, and he couldn't have any sensation in the foot. The leg eventually had to go as well. And we asked him what his recovery was like after this period, how he adapted to such a life-changing event. Um, yeah, it's definitely painful. It's not something I would recommend people trying, being eaten alive. It, it does not tickle. And um, I, I get constant reminders of it as well through phantom pains, which, uh, you know, I have 24 hour a day phantom sensation in my foot and in my hand that aren't even there. And occasionally I'll even get the, the actual phantom pains, which is like an electrical bolt. It's, it's like being torn apart all over again. It, it's incredible. And so that took a lot of getting used to. Um, many nights I would cry myself to sleep because I was so tired and I was so exhausted, but the pain just wouldn't let me fall asleep. And so that took a, a really long time to deal with, just trying to deal with the pain from the moment I woke up to as long as I physically could throughout the day until it was just so bad I had to take something. And day by day, you know, that period, that period of time got longer and longer and longer to the point where the doctor's were asking me to start coming off the drugs and I was almost free of them. Um, and the fact that I had a goal of getting back to work, uh, no matter how impossible it seems to most people and even to myself sometimes, having that goal was the driving motivator. Uh, and that was something that really, really helped me out emotionally, mentally, physically, because I knew if I was going to go back to work, I had to be super fit. And so every morning we'd get up and we'd go to the gym and I'd learn to use my body again and I'd, I'd push through the pain and try and make myself stronger. And then I'd read and I'd study and I'd look at my nutrition and I did everything that I could to give myself the best chance at success. And, and it worked. Getting back to work, Paul, uh, you've said it your, your, yourself right there, was the motivating factor for continuing to get up in the morning, to put your, your, your body mentally, physically through pain yet again to get back to a semblance of your former self. I want to ask, though, and I know this is a, a personal question, the, the low point, is there a specific moment when you went through this rehabilitation, this recovery? You mentioned there about waning yourself off of painkillers. You were, you were taking the brunt. You were taking the pain. Was there any point, though, where you really hit a low ebb that you can vividly remember and perhaps could tell us about? Yeah, there was a lot of dips, but I, I generally didn't allow them to affect me too badly. And, you know, I looked at it as a choice. Um, you know, I can dwell on this and the pain and, and, and sink into that hole of depression, but I mentally and emotionally did not allow myself to do that. But the day after my leg surgery was probably the worst, the worst time of my entire life because the pain management team um, couldn't manage my pain. The, the drugs weren't working. I was going through this agonizing pain 
and I was scared of my future and I was emotionally tormented and it would have you know it would have been okay if it was one hour or two hours but that turned into five turned into 10 turned into 20 23 hours of that agonizing pain not knowing when it was going to stop and that was the worst part it got so bad I begged my mum to go and find a gun. I, I wished that the shark had killed me so I didn't have to go through that pain um, at my absolute lowest point. And I, I would never wish that on my worst enemy. I can't even begin to try and, and describe or, or try and picture myself in that same situation as Paul de Gelder there explaining the aftermath of that shark attack. It was vivid, and as Sonal rightly pointed out at the start of that uh, interview, it is harrowing indeed. He has picked himself back up again. You know, it's been 10 years now since the attack. But a really interesting twist in the story is that he was never a fan of sharks prior to his attack. He always thought they were just, you know, a menace, Mm. thought they should be wiped out. And after his attack, he told us how he actually had been approached by different media anytime there was a shark attack or an incident. And because of that, he felt he had to educate himself so that he wouldn't sound dumb. And um, through that education, he realized how important they are to the ecosystem, how long they've been around. And through that, has actually started advocating for sharks. So even after that gruesome attack, he said he's come to realize how much harm we do to them and how sort of rare it is for an incident like his to to take place. So in addition to advocating for sharks, he's also started acting now. He works with the Discovery Channel on Shark Week. And he says that every time they they do this show, they're they're risking their lives. I think in his latest one that's coming up, he's going to be parachuting out of a plane. Into a shark enclave. Yeah, insane. So we did have to ask him how he's managed to overcome such a traumatic physical injury to get to the place that he is today. You know, not everyone's going to have to go through that, and that's a blessing. But everyone does go through their their own torment and their own story. And equally horrific things happen to people all the time. And, and you know, and my story is no bigger or better than anyone else's. It's, it's just a little bit different. But the tools that we use to overcome those are fundamentally the same. And so having gone through that, um, that immense pain, but also having gone through five years of Army Airborne, uh, four years of Navy clearance time, and going through that that torturous pain of passing those selection courses and doing my job, one of the, the hardest jobs in the military, that set me up for success. It taught me that you know pain is temporary. I can I can deal with this if I just keep pushing through. Um, and the harder I train, the easier it's going to be later in life. And so that's how I treated that whole recovery process. And it worked. It absolutely worked. And, and not just that, but not trying to focus on the things that I'd lost, on the limbs, on the job, on, on the life that I'd lost. I focused on the, on the things that I could control, you know, the things that I wanted to do the things that I could gain from now, the opportunities that he could bring me. And I'd started doing a little bit of motivational speaking when I was in the Navy. I was getting paid almost my two weeks Navy wage to speak for one hour. But public speaking was the only thing I was more afraid of than sharks. And so I had to face that fear as well. And in doing that, in overcoming that fear of public speaking, I created this whole new life mm. uh, to the point now where I, I was making my six 
month's Navy wage in one hour. Wow. Just because I overcame that fear, just because I, I pushed past the boundaries that I had put on myself, like a, a lot of us do a lot of the time. We have these self-imposed limitations and boundaries and things that we're afraid of that we protect ourselves from by not getting uncomfortable. But I knew what getting uncomfortable was like, and I knew that getting uncomfortable made me grow as a person. Now, 10 years after the shark attack, I'm living in L.A., I've got uh, another, you know, a second two-year contract working with Discovery Channel, working on Shark Week. I get paid to travel the world, dive with sharks, hang out with my friends. They're paying for me to do a parachute course at the moment so I can parachute out into the world's second biggest shark sanctuary and survive for two days and two nights without food or water. Uh, <laughs> might not say I'm like everyone's dream job, but I just, I love the adventure. And so, you know, all of that, all of those little lessons and those goals and challenges and the things, the tools that we can all use, no matter our circumstances, helps me create a dream life. And, and that can work for anyone. What a story that is. A man who thankfully has come through his massive ordeal that he suffered 10 years ago and he is now making a success of life. He hit the, the bottom, as he said, that he wanted to end his life after that shark attack, ripped off his, his hand and his right leg and now here he is enjoying life and I guess putting it just into perspective that you know there is a life even after tragedy. Thanks for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.